Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University. Thank you to all the listeners who have sent emails and texts about their favorite podcasts of the year. Please continue to let me and Lily Gorin know about the authors you'd like to hear from or shows that you particularly enjoyed. You can write to us via Twitter or email. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Holly Jackson, Associate Professor of English at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, to discuss her new book, American Radicals, How 19th Century Protests Shaped the Nation, published by Crown in 2019. This is Holly's second book, and she's also written on slavery, suffrage, protest, and voting for the Boston Globe, Washington Post, and the New York Times. Holly, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks, Susan. Glad to be here. You open your book on the 4th of July, 1826, as the United States celebrates the semi-centennial or jubilee 50 years after the Declaration of Independence. You paint a picture of what we might expect, booming cannons, church bells peeling for the heroes of 1776, but also what we might not. Uh, Robert Owen, a Scot, speaking in Indiana, implores a thousand listeners to launch a second revolution. He presents a declaration of mental independence, recommending that the crowd slay a hydra of evils, private property, religion, and marriage. You use Owen to focus the reader's attention on the hundreds of thousands of 19th century Americans who would pledge themselves to what you call a vision of the nation based on collectivity, equality, and freedom. These American radicals would build a tradition of resistance and reform that would reshape American life, influencing, quote, westward expansion, southern secession, northern victory, and reconstruction, unquote. Your book focuses on individuals, both familiar, once famous but forgotten, and also little known to demonstrate the extent to which 19th century American radicals transformed law, the text of the Constitution, and innumerable aspects of American culture, including, quote, the breakfast table, marital bed, and the church pew, unquote. 
By focusing on both private life and traditional politics, the book demonstrates how American radicals affected a second revolution in slavery and race, sex and gender, and property and labor, impacting prisons, housing, birth control, free speech, imperialism, and even diet. You write that the radicals look to change the, quote, invisible, toxic framework of the entire society rather than reform any particular institution. And you end the book by reflecting on the extent to which the American radicals succeeded and failed, seeing important contributions even in those so-called failures. Um, Before we focus on your analysis of the three main themes and your four errors, let's talk a little bit about your scholarship and what led you to focus on 19th century radicalism. So how did you come to write this book? How is your training in English connected to what some might read as a political history or an intellectual biography of a philosophical movement? And also, how is this book or is this book related to your first book, American Blood, The Ends of the Family in American Literature, 1850 to 1900, which was published by Oxford in in 2014? So just tell me how you came to this topic. Yeah, all great questions. I do think this book grows out of my, my first book, though, as you say, that first book was uh, an academic book written for a university press uh, and came out of my dissertation in an English department um, when I was really focused on literary studies. And now, I mean, with American Radicals, I see it as a it's an it's a narrative history and it's and it's written for a general audience. It's a it published by a by a trade press, and it, the the project of the research was really pretty similar, uh, but the but the writing was a was a much different project, and that was kind of what I wanted out of it. But there were a few few threads that contributed to me getting to American radicals, and and one is that I had just written this first book that's about what we would call family values politics in the nineteenth century, so rhetoric and representations of the nation as a family and as a white family. And, you know, that's been used on kind of both sides of the political spectrum, certainly. But um, one thing that we know from from uh, our own moment in politics going back to the to the late 20th century is how those that kind of talk is used to bolster conservative agendas, which is to say social change and, you know, people of color and immigrants and women's rights, et cetera, are all threats to the traditional American family. And so that book was about how that rhetoric was developed in the 19th century alongside the emergence of the American family as we know it. So in the course of that project and by the end of it, I had come into contact with the free lovers of the 19th century. And I don't, I didn't write about them to, at any real length in that first book. I do mention them. But I had, had come across them, and the, the, the free lovers were, uh, it, it, they were a lot of things. There were a lot of varieties of them. But at the, at the baseline, they, they critiqued the nuclear family. They critiqued marriage. They wanted to abolish marriage, or some of them just wanted to reform it and make divorce readily available. Um, many of them critiqued monogamy. Many of them critiqued kind of private child rearing, et cetera. These are really interesting folks, and we normally don't. There hasn't been, you know, a ton of focus on them in our picture of what this kind of, you know, nineteenth-century America prim and proper domesticity looks like. And so, when I finished that book, I wrote an article about the about the free love novel. In other words, about novels that were written by the people who were active in that movement or in the that cluster of movements. And I got interested in that time. Um, in kind of what constituted radicalism or what would constitute a counterculture 
in my period of study in, in the 19th century. And so I had that going on. And around that same time, I, I had the opportunity to teach uh, at UMass Boston a, a grad seminar, a master's seminar at the BPL, the Boston Public Library, in the rare books room. And um, I was interested okay, in this. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I'm just loving, exactly. I'm loving the image of being in your class in the rare books room at the public library. That's making my heart beat. Exactly. So it's, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful archive. And I, as I said, I was interested in this question of radicalism and what constituted a counterculture, but their particular strength in that collection is that they have a massive and um, really in my mind, peerless anti-slavery collection because they have all of Garrison's stuff. They have a John Brown Pike. They have John Brown's um, little leather journal that he had on his person in Kansas. Uh, all of these things are there. And um, so I taught this and course. And some are pictured, and I'm sorry to interrupt, and some of them are pictured in the book as well. So That's the book's right. got some, some selective photos that are great. Good. Thank you. Yeah. So I, I had a chance to work with students hands-on in this really amazing, um, really textured archive that was both uh, manuscripts and it was published stuff, but it was also this incredibly rich material uh, culture from the anti-slavery movement. And so, I mean, a couple of things were occurring to me there. One was that... Um, First of all, I was seeing some of the connections. These these kinds of movements in the 19th century, these radical movements were much more intersectional and connected. And so I would see just names popping up that I knew from the free love work. Uh, and I was just seeing connections that I hadn't known before. But also working there with students, uh, I just could see the appeal of the narrative aspects of the story and just bringing this story to life uh, for these master students who, you know, I teach it at, at, in Boston's only public research university. My students are, are working teachers and things like this. And, and, and so they really are, they're the public, right? And we were in this public collection. And around this time, Trump was elected. Uh, this was <laughs> in 2016. And there was a lot of conversation at that time about, um, about, well, you recall, I mean, there was a sense that the election was contested and that the Women's March turned out very quickly, that people were concerned about um, calling their representatives and people were kind of feeling radicalized around that election in a certain way. Right. And there's so many of these issues started coming up that, that any student of the 19th century is familiar with. So child separation, sexual assault, um, this idea of even going back to 2008, this, this, we're, we're kind of in a wave of American protest that was concerned about a 1% having too much control in American life. People are talking about black lives being devalued. People are talking about immigration. And it just seemed to me the moment to revisit these issues at, in, their, in, their, in this kind of predecessor moment of the 19th century. And I was interested in the project of presenting it in a narrative way for as big an audience as I could reach. I mean, in part, it was, it was a kind of new project for me as a writer, but it also just felt like a moment where that kind of work was needed. Um, as I know, COVID has made it so hard to connect with your audience. But what has the reception been? Have you have you gotten what you wanted from the audiences that you were hoping to reach? Yes, I think so. I mean, it's it's in terms of writing a trade book. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's been I, I, it's been a great experience for me. I really enjoyed uh, working with my editor in the same way that I would work with peer reviewers. And I did conference the material and talk to academic colleagues about it. Um, but in terms of the book coming out, yeah, I mean, I do feel like it has reached academics in my field and across fields um, in all kinds of American studies and uh, 19th century studies and in political science, et cetera. Um, but also I do, I get emails all the time. And since the book came out, I, I have gotten emails all the time from readers in all walks of life that, that are just, that, that read the book and have something to say to me about it. And this is not an experience that I've had with my academic writing and publishing in the past. So that is, yes, I mean, that is what I had in mind. And I think that, that um, I have had that experience with, um, with, with having a book that you can walk into Barnes and Noble and buy. Well, and I think also this is a very relevant book for academics as well. I just want to say that as as I read it, it was helpful to me as somebody who does American political thought, and I can see how elements of it might find its way into future scholarship. And second, I'm teaching American political thought this semester at a you know Philadelphia Jesuit school, and I'm going to list five books, mostly trade books, that students will pick one of to read on their own. And this is going to be one of them. So I think that this like was very, very helpful to me. And uh, and also I can see it as being incredibly accessible for my students. So I really think you, you accomplished that. Um, let me ask you a little bit more about like, I don't know, in quotation marks, method. So you, you write that even the wackiest features of American radicalism were really, quote, protests against mainstream values that helped define the communities of consent that shaped the era's momentous struggle over the meaning of American democracy. Was the idea of focusing on individuals in their idiosyncrasies always part of the book, or did that emerge as you did the research? You know, also tell me a little bit about how you researched the book. You know, talking about sitting in the public library, how much of your time was spent in digital archives, traditional archives, maybe share an aha moment uh, in which a document changed the narrative or some expectation that you had was, was, you know, you had to have some pause about it. Yeah. I mean, there, there are a couple of different kinds or a few different kinds of research that went into the book. One is that just from a, from a scholarly point of view, I, I do think a synthesis of the existing, uh, and the, and the past, uh, scholarship and writing on these topics was really needed because most of the treatments of these movements have been as these kind of siloed reform movements. And I, I mean, I, there was an intervention I wanted to make there. And so a lot of the, a, a lot of uh, synthesizing of the existing literature was uh, important. And I think that's there too. Yes, I was looking for primary documents and, and, and new material that had not been treated before. And I think I found, you know, I, I think that there are are examples of that um, throughout, uh, and even even some texts that were uh, that are kind of familiar. I wanted to present new readings of them, and I think this is where my background as a as an English PhD in, in literary studies shows. Even though the book is primarily about American history and American politics. Um, for instance, even, I mean, just my understanding of events, historical events themselves as texts, I think is, um, is a departure from the way that some historians approach things. So for instance, when I talk about familiar texts being reread, I'm thinking one example that comes to mind is that when there's an event 
that is rather famous in the history of American radicalism, like, for instance, William Lloyd Garrison burning the Constitution on the 4th of July in 1854. This is a relatively um, well, it's well known by scholars of this material. But for me, I wanted to present that episode in a different light and give it a real reading, right? Like to frame it um, alongside an increasing kind of embrace of violence and um, this idea that words alone were not enough, even for the most staunch pacifist in the nation, that, that to enact some kind of physical performance of violence on the stage became necessary. Um, or for instance, in, a, in actually a kind of a similar uh, metaphor, when Brook Farm, the Brook Farm commune, when it, when it catches fire, um, you know, that to me, it, it's, it's, it really happened. It, it, it was a, a real kind of um, materially dangerous and economically disastrous event um, that happened. And I wanted to treat it in that way. And I wanted to read letters and newspaper accounts. And I do talk about those in the book. But for me, it's also a metaphor. Like, what does it mean? for this commune to be on fire on this winter night and this community of people to come together to try to put it out and to stop and comment together actually on how beautiful it was as it burned and, and to try to look at that from a few different, in a few different ways that are, that are figurative um, as well as historical. Um, this is the kind of approach I tried to take to the, to the research and writing. And finally, there were, there were kind of site visits because I was trying to write in this different way about, for instance, Brook Farm, I went there a couple of times and just walked around and, and looked at the, you know, what does the land there look like? What does it look like now? Um, in Manhattan, where the Free Love Club was that I write about, these dance parties and conversation parties, um, you know, what does that corner look like now? It's uh, It's got a Sephora <laughs> in the space. Uh, and so, you know, things like that are like Sylvester Graham's house in Western Mass, like going there and, and having breakfast and seeing all of the kind of panic about gluten on the on the menu when when it's and just kind of understanding this as as in relation to his bread, bread phobias and his how his sexual theories grew out of this concern about white bread, but that you know, the, the people who run this restaurant, they're seeming unawareness of, <laughs> of this connection. Right. I loved that part of the book. I loved that. It, was there, and was there anything that we, you found like truly shocking that really you picked something up or visited and you thought, well, this is so different um, than I thought? Yes. I mean, I learned, I don't know. I mean, everything that's in the book, almost everything that's in the book in, in a certain way, came as a surprise to me in a, in a, in a sense. I mean, so much of it, like just the free lovers to, to read someone in the 1850s talking about, um, uh, adhesiveness as he called it between men or talking about, um, non-monogamy or, um, there's so much about labor that I didn't know. Like there was this massive, um, great strike of 1877 that I knew very little about, um, and there's a lot about labor history that I think is just not of interest uh, to, mm. to in history instruction in a certain way um, that, that people just don't learn about as a, as a, as a hugely important aspect of, of American life and of the development uh, of American culture and politics at that time. And so, yes, I mean, I didn't know, you know, I too was discovering people like Francis Wright and, um, you know, learning more about these people who played these roles, learning about Robert Owen. I mean, these stories were 
new to me too. I mean, even if these are names that in the course of, uh, of learning about 19th century America, these are kind of sideshow type names that you come across, um, you know, in histories of Jacksonian America or in histories of antebellum America, these people get a mention. Um, but really digging into how imbricated they were in what we would consider mainstream change and mainstream forces and, and people who were uh, in power, real power, uh, I, you know, this was all relatively new to me and putting them at the center. My hope was that putting them at the center of the story of American history at this time, say from the 20s to the 70s, um, that, that things look different. But it's this, it's the story we know, um, but that it, it cast it in a different light. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. So, um, and, and I, I just want to say as a reader, I found the mix of the familiar Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Garrison and the people who I, I felt like, I think I'm supposed to know who that is, but I, and, but I don't, or I can't remember. And then people whom I've never heard of was just, was just terrific. Um, you have these three themes, slavery and race, sex and gender, property and labor that that thread throughout the book, which really unifies all of these various characters. And then you also have these four different errors. Um, let, let's, in a book like this, it's just impossible for us to go through, uh, you know, a, a, an argument uh, step by step. But I do think looking at the each of the parts and a couple of the things in them will really give listeners an idea of the um, the depth and breadth of the book. So part one is called Foul Oppression in the Wind of Freedom, 1817 to 1840. What kind of radical thinking and organizing do we see in this early period? Uh, you mentioned, uh, right, but are, are there one or two characters in the book that would help listeners understand your main claims about this period? Yes. So that first section of the book, um, it starts in 1817 because the 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 first act of protest that I wanted to narrate and that I wanted to to uh, offer as the beginning of the particular tradition that, that I was interested in tracing all the way through was in Philadelphia and it was carried out by the free black community that had been really active in Philadelphia for for actually quite a while before this in 1817. But the reason that they were gathered in January 1817 is that the American Colonization Society had been formed in D.C. just the month before. And the American Colonization Society was um, a, an organization that was founded by white men. It was very well funded. It had, it had uh, government funding at the federal and state levels. And the entire 
point of it was to remove free people of color from the nation, from from the from the territorial U.S., and to find some place to take them off to uh, where they had never been. And this was this was some kind of version of this was regarded at that early stage as some version of um, benevolent uh, work in the sense that there was an idea that that slowly perhaps enslaved people would be manumitted and slowly, of course, once they were free, they would be removed from the country. And, but, but really free people immediately understood and they could read the materials coming out of these or this organization. It was just targeted at this idea that free people of color were a dangerous destabilizing uh, population because they weren't enslaved and yet they weren't also not white. They weren't. They didn't have full citizenship, and and they were they were regarded as as dangerous and problematic. And so there was the idea of of finding a place to take them. And so this this major this big active community in Philadelphia gathered thousands strong in um, in Mother Bethel, which is the um, first AME church there um, with B- Bishop Allen and and. Um, James Fortin, who's kind of the first, my first character that I introduced, character, figure, that's introduced in the book. And we actually follow his family all the way through the 70s. We have, we're, we're, we're looking at his grandchildren and their activism by the end of the story. Um, but we start with James Fortin, who is a very uh, quite wealthy uh, African-American man. And uh, he was writing and he was uh, organizing in this community. And he led this meeting to, to ask this community, are you interested in this? Because there are also, you know, there were also, as you know, Paul Coffey, who he was in, who Fortin and, and Allen were in conversation with, who were similarly interested in the prospects of this idea of, of um, a black exodus from the U.S. in search of a better life. And so on one hand, this sounded potentially like a really good opportunity because the U.S. was a terrible place to live as a person of color, right? I mean, they were constantly, even even people like Fortin, who were wealthy and who were free, their, his life was really circumscribed and he could be kidnapped. He could potentially be sold into slavery. Um, he, there were just limits on what he and his family could do, despite his relative privilege. And so on one hand, it seemed like kind of a good idea. And so they gathered together and he said, is anybody interested in this? I mean, does this sound like something that you would want to do? Would you be interested in leaving the United States and seeking a better life? And there was no response at all. It was just thousands of people being silent. And then he kind of asked again, what do you think about this American colonization society and their their interest in um, taking us out of the US? And there was, as he described it, a tremendous no that kind of shook the building. And this claim to American belonging in this insistence that, in fact, they would stay in the United States and it was their country, um, really just struck me as the beginning of the particular tradition that I was interested in tracing. And even just that, as a kind of a figure for protest, a tremendous no, like a rejection of what these white male government officials had in mind for them, um, just seemed to me a very moving place to start. And so from there, I talk about uh, the first wave of. Uh, Utopian Socialism with Robert Owen and Francis Wright and how their story intersects with this anti-slavery 
uh, tradition through Wright's Neshoba, which ended up being um, a real disaster in part because she had an opportunity to team up with Fortin and his group of activists that had already been dealing with this for decades. She had an opportunity to understand how they were trying to approach these questions. They were working with um, the Haitian immigration movement, et cetera, but she failed to, to create a coalition and kind of wanted to have an adventure of her own. And so we follow her through her failed project at Neshoba. And then from there, uh, I talk about the emergence of radical immediatism, which was um, which was a new kind of abolitionism that cut, a, cut against what Wright had been doing. So Neshoba was a commune outside of what's now Memphis. And she thought that it was a place where they would work out her um, advanced ideas about gender and sex. And she was going to have enslaved people work there and work out the cost of their freedom and their um, and their their deportation from the United States. So she was going along with this idea of colonization that she learned from Jefferson and from the ACS and various places. Um, but at Neshoba, she was actually enslaving people. And she ended up, she did take them to Haiti eventually after they had worked on this, uh, at, at this outback commune for a number of years. Um, but then around 1830, we have the emergence of a new kind of radical anti-slavery movement that was demanding the immediate end of slavery. It was, it was saying that slaveholders would not be compensated. Um, and it was reaching for a kind of horizon of abolition that the country had really not seen. And this springs up in around 1830 with uh, David Walker uh, and then with William Lloyd Garrison. And, um, and also to some degree with the kind of radicalization that came with the Nat Turner uprising um, just after that. And so this is the birth of a radical movement, and it ends up being the, the first uh, social justice movement in the United States that um, was comprised of men and women. It was comprised of African-Americans and, and white allies. It cut across class, and it, was the, and it cut across kind of state lines, and it was a national movement. It was the first, it was the first movement of this kind. And the, the end of that section takes us up to 1840. And by that time, this movement was taking on kind of a broader and broader range of, of, of issues that ended in the founding of the non-resistance society, which is, a, which is a, an aspect of abolitionism that interests me very much and that I think is not talked about enough is, is non-resistance. And it was very, it, it caused a split in the movement around 1840. And so I was, I was interested in this on one hand around that moment of reaching toward a more and more radical horizon for, the, for what abolitionism could be. But then on the other hand, a desire to, um, to make change politically around 1840 and to, to, to actually like to try to move into the American political system and, and to, with the Liberty Party and, and other projects. So that's kind of the first section of the book. No, thank you so much. And that's a, that's a heck of a summary. Um, it's a very, very detailed uh, section. And you can, you can really feel yourself inside the, the church. You can sort of hear the voices. And um, uh, I particularly love the part on David Walker. I just finished teaching David Walker in last semester. And students really connected with him uh, were sort of surprised by the things that he was saying. So it was a, it was a really, really great chapter to read. Um, You've mentioned earlier free love, and the second part is called Infidel Utopian Free Lovers, 1836 to 
1858. So we back up just a few years. Um, throughout the book, you, you, you demonstrate how radicals connected what the lives they lived in private and the principles that they held in public life, like how those two things are connected. Um, and this second part focuses on radicals challenging traditional understandings of marriage and other relationships. Can can you give us a couple of examples of of why it was so essential to understanding radical thinking to on as wide-ranging topics as law, economics, and policy to also understand how they saw these more personal relationships and sexual relationships? Yes. Yeah. So um, this that section of the book is it, it wants to to focus on how that 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 radical anti-slavery movement that I just described. There was a critique of gender and sex as they were known that was embedded in that movement, and that was really starting to to come to the fore and and actually be quite divisive in the movement by 1840. Um, and there was also a critique there of capitalism. The, I mean, there was you know Garrison and and the Garrisonians were really multi issue activists, and um, they had a they had a critique of the exploitation of labor. And they certainly had a critique of of marriage and gender, and and some of their even their earliest actions had to do with um, trying to get rid of the ban on interracial marriage and things like this that were quite um, sexually taboo in the United States. And so there, these things were from the beginning all entwined. And then, of course, in uh, 1837, there was a the the, the nation's first major economic crash. And, and um, there was a long depression and economic depression after that point. And so that next section of the book is trying to, it kind of brings together what are the kind of anti-capitalist solutions that come to the fore when capitalism plainly fails, when a bubble bursts and people are starving and killing themselves as they were uh, in 1837 and after. Um, the country actually, there was a moment where some anti-capitalist ideas really gained traction around 1840. And um, I talk about this particular philosopher named Charles Fourier and his impact on, um, well, first of all, on a kind of intellectual tradition that we, that we associate with the transcendentalists in the Northeast, um, but, but on this movement of kind of socialist communes and what that meant. And embedded in that was free love. I mean, this guy was a, um, he wanted the abolition of marriage, which Robert Owen had called for before him. So this was not a new argument in the United States. And um, he, he, there was also all sorts of kind of wild erotic imaginings in these works that anyone who could read French um, plainly knew about, although they were doing American translations that focused on the economic aspects and the kind of the reform of industry aspects about um, how, um, how, how work should change in the U.S. But it also involved, as you said, private life. How should people live? Um, and a big focus was the abolition of the private home. Um, the isolated household is what Albert Brisbane called it. And um, John Humphrey Noyes, who was uh, the founder of the Oneida community and who was involved in a number of these movements, he said that all of these movements, whether they were focused on um, 
that uh, for their various focuses, that all of them were wanted to kind of explode what he called the little man-woman circle. That what they had in mind was the abolition of the family as we know it. And he kind of proudly proclaimed that, um, but others use this as a way of attacking the, this was, this was a main kind of anti-reform strategy as well to say, these people are all trying to destroy the family. And um, in fact, it was kind of true. <laughs> oh, sorry, perhaps a, uh, a statement about, about, about the efficacy of these ideas that, 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 in fact, that's what they were trying to do. And, and it was, it was understood as, as threatening as it would still be understood, right? So much of what's in this book, so much of what is said is really still on the table as radical for many Americans, it seems to me. Um, and as and equally, it is in, in a lot of ways is even, well, I, I won't take us to politics right now, but the is more relevant given the focus on, um, on whiteness and on whiteness being the tradition that in, in a lot of ways, your book is really pushing back on that as, um, as, as our history in, in quotation marks. Um, do you want to say anything more about, um, the, the private part? Um, men and women are both involved in this, uh, maybe a little bit about one of the communities that they form. Well, I talk at length about Brook Farm, um, which is probably the best known one, but there were others. I mean, there was Berlin Heights in Ohio that was much more kind of flagrantly um, devoted to the end of monogamy. And of course, people may have heard of Modern Times on Long Island, which was similarly much more interested in, the, in sexual experimentation than Brook Farm was. Um, but all of these things were related. I mean, they were simultaneously interested in working out new systems of labor and compensation. And they, they wanted to, they wanted an end to capitalist exploitation, but they had a, a, a critique of these systems that included the private home and that included private life and patriarchy in a way that, you know, sometimes it's, it, you know, it remains hard and difficult for people to have a kind of an integrated critique of the public and the private. But actually in this particular moment of socialist or at least anti-capitalist thought, um, I think we really see this sense that it was a feminist issue. And although, I mean, many of the leaders that we're talking about here, many of the writers were men, they really foregrounded a feminist argument in how they uh, approached these changes, like that the abolition of the private household would free women to, to lead real lives. And actually, one thing that was interesting to me, and one of the, I mean, I wanted to intervene in the, in the way that the history of these movements is told in a number of ways, but we're always told that, that the women's movement that we associate with, um, say, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, we're always told that this grew out of anti-slavery, and, and it did. But if you read Stanton's, um, her autobiography, she says that her her interest in, in doing the Seneca Falls Convention and convening the Seneca Falls Convention came from reading Char this, this translation of Charles Fourier by Albert Brisbane that I just mentioned. Um, she was a really privileged person. She, she was in Boston, surrounded by all of these kind of amazing, brilliant activist lefty types. And then she moved to rural upstate New York, and she didn't have any domestic help yet. And she had all these children and she was doing all of this work. Her husband was in the anti-slavery movement, although he had broken from garrison uh, in 1840. And she had to be a woman in the way that all women had to live, which is that she talked about 
endlessly dealing with like children's clothes and children's meals and taking them around and, you know, doing stuff for her husband. And she had no life and she missed her intellectual uh, conversations. She missed, she missed her friends that she had had who saw her as a person. And she read this translation of Charles Fourier and she said, yeah, he's absolutely right. This is why we're all locked up in these private households. Um, and, and this is why it's not me, like I'm feeling depressed, but this is the problem of women everywhere. So in other words, this is the genealogy of American feminism that grows equally out of anti-slavery and out of socialism. And, and elsewhere in the book, you, you write that Stanton and her colleagues in the women's movement end up turning away from these, their most radical ideas. Uh, you, you say something like they, uh, damned a potentially capacious women's movement. I think I'm botching that. So and and sort of made it into this very narrow version of suffrage reform. Um, but it's very interesting in the book how you show where she and others were at the time. No, not at all. She she. I mean, this is all the moments of. I mean, a, a lot of the moments of failure in the book have to do with this letting go of a, a broader, more radical vision in an attempt to be pragmatic in some way. But yeah, Seneca Falls was not about voting. Uh, and she knew that marriage, uh, she, she said a number of times throughout her career that, that, that basically if you were afraid of marriage being abolished, that you should get out of the woman's rights vote, basically, because it did. I mean, she kind of admitted like, yes, it does tend in that direction and it should. Right. Although in the end, that's not how it gets remembered, which I, I think is, again, it's a, it's a real contribution to this book that it sort of re-enriches our understanding of where these movements were and what we remember them and, and why, which we'll get to at the end. Uh, part three is Abolition War, 1848 to 1865. What, um, and, and for, for those familiar, this, this is the period of the Civil War, but what here really struck you as not what you were expecting, different from our usual version of the Civil War, the abolition movement, the the secession of the South, and the um, attitudes in the North. Yeah, there. So there are a couple of things that I points that I wanted to make in this section. One is that I, uh, of course, in the story of of radicalism in this moment, one has to tell the story of John Brown, and so there that was a whole project is kind of how to frame and present this best known instance of radicalism um, and all of the various parts of it his white backers, his black backers, the story of it, what he was trying to do, what it accomplished. Um, so the John Brown story is is in that section of the book, um, as is the continued, I'm following also Martin Delaney in this part of the book, who had held on to um, the dream of leaving the United States. And as he continued to, to work and lead in the US, he was also at the head of, a, of an emigration movement at the same time. But there are a couple of points in, in this part of the book that seemed important to me to make. One, in terms of the history of protest movements, I think it's really important to talk about the embrace of the state and the embrace of military violence by um, anti-slavery in this period. That just seems to me very consequential. The, the, the government had always been regarded by the most radical fringe of the anti-slavery movement, had seen the U.S. government as the main problem. But then they were apparently going to end up being the way that emancipation happened. Um, and so there was a change there that uh, for, for Garrison and for the people who were the many people who kind of associated their anti-slavery with Garrison. Um, there was a change in how they thought about state violence there that, that turned out to be, I think, important for the Reconstruction period that followed. But two, 
an argument that I make in this part of the book that surprised me, I guess, is that I had never understood the extent to which when the South declared its separation and and declared um, that it could no longer be in a union with the North, what they pointed to was anti-slavery sentiment in the North. I mean, and I mean, this was in the wake of John Brown, but specifically, it seems to me that this was really a war on dissent. I mean, they, it, it was a war to maintain white supremacy and slavery. Um, but the thing that they pointed to as being in the way of this is that the North was harboring an unconstitutional um, f- group of fanatics that included John Brown and his backers, but that they were harboring these societies and had been for 30 years that had convinced a growing number of people that slavery was a moral problem. And Calhoun had said this going back to the 30s. He said, you know, abolitionism and the union are incompatible. And this is why he had succeeded in making those gag rules in Congress in the 1830s. And he turned out to be right that he they did convince people slowly but surely, this little fringe group of, of like fanatics convinced people over time that slavery, white people, I should say, that slavery was a moral problem, and therefore they did feel um, that they had to uh, work against it. And that the South, in in the various state declarations of secession, um, they talk about how the North has harbored this sentiment against them, and that it's unconstitutional, and that they no longer can be uh, in the union with them. So the, the extent to which they really mentioned abolitionism itself as much as slavery, I mean, of course, they they wanted to defend slavery, but the North had accommodated that all along. I mean, the North had the presidents, you know, up until this point were doe-faced Democrats up until, uh, up until, you know, this, this point that we're talking about in the 1850s, they had accommodated slavery. I mean, they had, they had wanted to stop its spread. They had wanted to, you know, not have it go to the West and they'd wanted to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But they were really accommodating about slavery. But what the South pointed to was, um, we are going to protect our way of life against these people who are kind of attacking it first on moral grounds and now in these armed insurrections like we're seeing with John Brown and to some extent in these other uh, instances like in Bleeding Kansas, et cetera, that, that basically it was erupting into violence. Uh, it's funny. I did a book a little while back uh, by Julia Rose Kraut called Threat of Dissent, which is about ideological exclusion and deportation in the 20th century in the United States. But she makes some of the same points that you make in that chapter about the extent to which dissent is is the problem and seen to be the problem and is seen to be the threat, not actual actions, not actual policy, but but dissent in and of itself. That's really interesting overlaps between your work there. The last part of the book uh, takes us into Reconstruction, which you've mentioned already, 1865 to 1877. So what happens at, at this end of what you're calling the, the, the radical period? Yeah. I mean, for me, the big story is that these movements, there was a splintering of these movements that had really worked together in a coalition there was a land grab for suffrage rights between white women and um, those who kind of remained committed to black rights first that ended up in the 15th Amendment and, and black male suffrage. Um, and the, the, the women's movement, as we know it, became increasingly volubly racist, problematic. Um, but really, the, I mean, the turn to suffrage, um, I mean, one argument that I think the book makes pretty clear is that this was putting all the eggs in the, in the basket of suffrage was a, was, 
it foreclosed a lot of other opportunities. And um, then, of course, we had a counter-revolution in the South that overthrew Reconstruction. And this book kind of tells that the sad story of the loss of promise after the Civil War. And then it ends with um, what I mentioned before, that massive labor uprising in 1877, and also with an account of the centennial year in the U.S., 1876, which was just a violent, disastrous time in American history, and pulls together the, you know, the threads that I've been following up to that time. Um, and um, just it, it basically that it was it felt like so much progress had been made. And of course, much progress had been made. Um, but it does end in this incredibly chaotic moment around the centennial and at the end of Reconstruction. So as you get to the end, uh, one of the things that you're sort of grappling with is whether we should understand radicalism as continuity, it's something that's always been with us, or it's something somehow foreign to U.S. DNA. And, you know, on the one hand, you highlight people who were affected and form part of our canon, like Hawthorne or Emerson or Thoreau or Louise Alcott. Um, so you, you're sort of, at the, by the end, trying to figure out why it is that 19th century radicalism has been forgotten. And you're asking us to sort of think about whether these activists were highly successful or uh, and only apparent losers or actually we have we have lost some of this and you you quote John Humphrey Noyes and he's the I hope I'm saying that right uh, who likely coined the term free love and led a commune in Oneida for those people who are using Oneida silverware and <clears throat> and he's writing in the New York Times in 1855 and he says these socialistic paradoxisms have changed the heart of the nation and that a yearning towards social reconstruction has become a part of the continuous, permanent inner experience of the American people. And you refer to that, and I loved this term, as slow-release radicalism. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about this, of, of how you understand, ultimately, the reformers as highly successful and part of the American experience while simultaneously being somehow outside of it. Right. Yeah, it's a complex question, but the main one of the main arguments or, or or projects of the book is to show that social justice activism was, has been, is a motor of American history and has shaped American history. So these things, these events that we know about in, in this period of history in, in America, that reformers as they've been known in previous histories, these these movements they weren't just reacting and kind of attempting to, to uh, modify or respond to the real politics happening all around them. My point is that they actually were players and, and they were a force in shaping what happened. I mean, I just kind of made the point that without the anti-slavery movement and its, and its tireless work and without John Brown, I mean, the, the civil war, as we know it, the whole, the story around that would not be the same. Um, and similarly with the labor movement, similarly with women's rights, and sort of showing that they were motors of the history, that they did shape our history was important to me, that activism has been crucial. And in fact, that it has worked, although it, it often doesn't feel like it, it doesn't feel like success for a number of reasons that I talk about at the end of the book, um, but that they did, they accomplished things that were specific legislative changes 
they had in mind broader transformation um, that in some senses has worked over time in a slow release way, as I say, but then in some senses, yeah, is ongoing. I mean, we're, we're recording this the day after the, uh, after Joe Biden's inauguration. And, you know, when he talks about, I mean, he really was in his particular speech was making so many connections to, um, to the 19th century, of course, because everyone can't stop talking about the civil war and reconstruction right now, but specifically to 19th century, activist movements, um, he was talking about the suffrage movement and, and he was framing Kamala Harris as the, as this kind of culmination of, of, of the suffrage movements and talking about the suffragists. And it's like, on one hand, like, yes, <laughs> that's great, Joe Biden. But, but, but when I, you know, in my book, I'm talking about a women's movement that goes back not to, uh, 1919 and not even to 1848, but to the late 1830s. And so for us to be talking in 2020, about like this victorious um, moment for the suffrage movement, it does feel um, infuriatingly slow, right? I mean, it, it feels like to, that even to admit that as some as the victory of the movement um, just seems maddening in a certain way. Well, I might have been uh, influenced because I was finishing your book while I was watching the coverage of the inauguration yesterday, but. It, though he didn't say it directly in the speech, it was signaled by many of the other speeches and the commentary, which has to do with her family, which ha the, the fact that she is in a blended family, the fact that they're, that that her relationship with her children is is constructed and developed in a slightly different way than the sort of um, um, the imaginary, it's non-existent of the the white. Um, uh, nuclear family. So I, I felt like that was was lurking in the background, although I agree with you, it was not front and center at all in his speech. You you published this book in, in 2019, which meant it went to press before then. I'm wondering if you were writing the conclusion today, if there would be something else there that you would would add given what you've seen between 2018 and 2020. Hmm. Well, I don't, I mean, in the book, in the book's conclusion, when I talk about the issue of success and failure in social justice work and how to measure these things, and then, so how to kind of take the measure of 19th century radicalism and what it accomplished, I don't talk about specifically a context of 21st century American politics. Like, I don't make those parallels explicit around specific issues. Like I don't talk about climate justice. I, I, um, you know, I don't talk about the kind of divided nation now or voter suppression, all of the issues that are, that remain relevant. Um, but I do talk about the idea of a horizon that is not reached and that, and that can't be reached. And the, the entire book is devoted to this kind of question of whether American ideals that were that were stated in the in the kind of the declaration and that were part of the American Revolution, is that project unfinished, and that that's that's what we're working toward, or is it just <laughs> simply doomed? Is it is it just so flawed from the beginning that that it's just doomed to failure and hypocrisy, and that it's necessary to imagine other formations? I mean, I think that these basic questions in the book are they remain they remain our questions and that in this, in this period, it's become even more kind of graphic and that now people on every public stage are, are taking them up. Where, uh, 
where are you going? What's the next project that you're working on? Is it going to be a book? Is it going to be more public facing essays? What, what, what is, what does your scholarship look like right now? Uh, I have, I had for, for a time there when the book came out, I was focusing on writing op-eds about suffrage. There was the, there was the anniversary of this, of the suffrage amendments, um, both the 15th and the 19th. And so I was writing about those for, uh, for newspaper audiences um, and then I do have a, uh, I have an article coming out this summer in the Massachusetts Historical Review that's about sex radicalism in the anti-slavery movement. So it's about the crossover between free love and, and anti-slavery. And I'm writing something else about the, that 15th Amendment moment and um, the other, basically, uh, Black rights activists who are suspicious of putting all the eggs in the basket of suffrage and, and what other kinds of proposals were on the table that suffrage kind of foreclosed. Um, and I'm also, um, I'm writing now a little bit about the end of the world. <laughs> I've started a project wow, on, okay. uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm writing about, um, I'm, I'm interested in writing about this, uh, antebellum doomsday cult called the Millerites. Uh, and they had, they had pinpointed the date for the second coming in the 1840s. And I'm, I'm interested in writing about that moment in millenarianism, uh, as, a response to the acceleration of racial capitalism and, and just the kind of the moment in, in the history of slavery. Um, so that's uh, hopefully will be a project that is both narrative and, uh, and historical in that sense as well. Well, as any of these take book forms, uh, I'll hope to have you back on New Books Network. I've been talking with Dr. Holly ja- Jackson uh, about her new book, American Radicals, How 19th Century Protests Shaped the Nation, Nation published by Crown, uh, available uh, through bookshop.org, Amazon. We're encouraging people in the pandemic to support their brick and mortar bookstores. So please do that either by walking in and ordering them safely or ordering them and having them sent to your door or use Bookshop, which will support those bookstores and get this terrific book to you. Thank you so much, Holly, for joining me today. Thank you. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.